Irish hearth bread. Baked electrically is the old-fashioned kind baked in the new-fashioned way. Try it and tell your friends about it, and they'll rise and call you blessed. We have now five stores in Philadelphia. Minahan's Electric Bakeries, 18 South 52nd Street, 14 South 60th Street, 2604 Germantown Ave, 4009 Market Street, 1433 South Street. I the air with the greatest of A daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Well, hey there, and welcome to episode 31. Before we get going, I have some follow-up from the last episode. NB means nota bene. There were a couple of articles that I read last week. One of them was blurry, so I wasn't sure what it said. But anyway, I'm sure I've seen NB before, but not enough to prompt me to look it up. Uh, But anyway, it's sort of an equivalent of PS, but for something more formal, such as a monograph or a newspaper article. Memon Loving Mediums. I finally took the time to look up Mammon. This is from Wikipedia. I'm probably mispronouncing this. Uh, Maimon? Maimon. In the New Testament of the Bible is commonly thought to mean money, material wealth, or any entity that promises wealth and is associated with the greedy, pursuit of gain. The Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke both quote Jesus using the word in a phrase often rendered in English as, You cannot serve both God and mammon. There's a pretty neat painting in here uh, of a, of a lady presumably uh, worshipping mammon by Evelyn de Morgan. Uh, I recommend following along along with the show notes. Uh, In the Middle Ages, it was often personified and sometimes included in the seven princes of hell. Maimon in Hebrew means money. The word was adopted to modern Hebrew to mean wealth. So I regretted not looking that up previous to doing that uh, last episode because lends an additional dimension to the skepticism and scorn of that New York Herald article that I read. At 108.46 in that episode, I read an ad from R.A.N.A. Ward, M.D. and Professor of Electricity, and I was confused because it seemed like two parts of that ad were contradictory. After I released the episode, my friend April had an insight that I completely didn't, and once I heard 
her say, word was out on the street that she did abortions, I had a retroactive sense of, oh, well, yeah, obviously. Uh, again, follow along in the show notes. She says, uh, any disease incidental to morality can be cured by medicine and electricity combined. But then down below, she says, uh, for the information of all, we wish it distinctly understood that Mrs. De War Mrs. Dr. Ward never has and never will treat any case of that character. And if it and if ever called upon again for such treatment, we'll positively have such persons arrested. So, yeah, quite clearly, uh, somebody has been saying that uh, she was doing abortions and she wanted to disavow that. As you can see from that image in the show notes, I'm highlighting the relevant bits, and I'm hoping that that's going to improve the quality of my episodes. Now that I'm just winging it and not doing any editing, I am very self-conscious of all the uhs that I'm sticking in there. I can't stand that when I listen to podcasts, so I'm trying not to subject you to any more barrages of uhs. I have to just... Let the silences and the pauses abide. Speaking of episode quality, please let me know what you think of the sound quality. I know that it's not quite up to the standards of my previous episodes from three or four years ago up until two years ago. But uh, right now, it can't be helped. I just don't have the, the time and the circumstances to use the fancier microphone setup. Uh, I'm just doing it sort of guerrilla style on my phone. So leave a comment, please. Let me know if you decide not to listen, why. Or if you like it, let me know why. Can't promise to make any changes, but uh, I'm always happy to listen to feedback. This episode is dedicated to Betty Check, my mother-in-law. I was talking to Joe Check on St. Patrick's Day, and he was talking about his Irish soda bread tradition on St. Patrick's Day, and I offered to share that with him. Uh, I don't eat soda bread, but what the hell, I wasn't going to be physically present with him anyway, so I just wanted to be there in spirit. Betty died in May, and uh, I miss her. Betty was special. She was from a very different set of circumstances than I, and when I first met her, I don't think she knew what to make of me. I don't know if she ever really knew what to make of me, but by God, she she made every effort to connect with me and to understand me and to honor those very things that made it, made it challenging for her. I want to tell you a specific story that I always think of when I think of Betty and that effort she made. Back around 2006, 2007, Betty and Joe came to visit us in New York City, and she and Joe 
spent the day tootling around the city while I was at work. And when they got back to our apartment, she was telling a story about how she was marveling at some man on the train who was just openly reading a comic book. And this was the, the, the silliest, most ludicrous thing to her. And I smiled and nodded. Uh, I didn't mention to her that I had been an avid comic book reader since since I could hold a comic book. And I still went to the comic shops whenever and wherever I could. I was still an avid reader of, of comic books. I didn't want to embarrass her. And, uh, you know, just wanted to smooth the waters. And I remember as the years passed, it became more and more apparent that she was, was reaching out and making an effort to meet me in terms of personality and, and her understanding of, of me. She, she, she had expectations and I don't think I met them at first, but as the years passed, she, she came to see me for who I was and appreciate me, uh, for who I was. And in later years, I remember her making an effort to strike up conversations with me about my comic books and about other things that I loved that didn't necessarily meet with her previous expectations of what a cultured person might do or might not do. So I miss her and I, I remember her so fondly as being so willing to step outside of her comfort zone and to open up her eyes to what people not of her situation, not of her circumstances had to offer. Not everyone can do that. So I was hanging out virtually with Joe. He was having his Irish soda bread. And I casually asked him, so what's the history of Irish soda bread? And he said he didn't know. Well, that was another bit of catnip for me. I couldn't resist doing a little Googling. Found the following from MyRecipes.com. Apart from potatoes and shepherd's pie, perhaps the most famous food of the Emerald Isle is Irish soda bread, a simple classic that is baked in droves in the weeks and days leading up to St. Patrick's Day. Today, this traditional treat is a symbol of celebration for many relied on to soak up one too many green beers or whiskeys. However, the bread's history in Ireland began more out of practical necessity than culinary fun. Though soda bread is now most commonly attributed to Ireland, the first people to use soda to leaven their bread was the American Indians. These indigenous Americans were the first to be documented using pearl ash, a natural form of soda created from the ashes of wood, to leaven their breads without the presence of yeast. However, it wasn't until this process was later discovered and replicated by the Irish that it earned a reputation worldwide. Despite its heavy, hefty 
presence during St. Patrick's Day celebrations, the history of Irish soda bread doesn't nearly date back to the days of St. Patty himself, roughly 400 AD, but rather only a couple of centuries. Irish soda bread was first created in the late 1830s when the first iteration of baking soda, or bicarbonate soda, was introduced to the UK. Due to Ireland's financial strife and lack of access to ingredients, the inspiration for Irish soda bread was one of necessity in order to make the most of the basic and inexpensive ingredients available, soft wheat flour, baking soda, salt, and soured milk. For soda breads, soft wheat flour, a low-gluten variety of flour used in most quick bread recipes, is ideal rather than the hard wheat flour most likely to be found in a yeasted bread, and since Ireland's unique climate is only suitable to growing wheat of the soft variety, soda bread became a perfect match for the country's home cooks. Soda bread was also an ideal Irish recipe, as even families who lived in the most isolated of areas with little access to cooking equipment were able to create this simple and filling dish. Since many of the lower class and farmhouse kitchens had no oven access at the time, the bread was cooked in iron pots or on griddles over open hearths. This unique cooking method resulted in the signature dense texture, hard crust, and slight sourness that soda bread is known for. And I looked it up in Wikipedia which says that soda bread is a variety of quick bread traditionally made in a variety of cuisines in which sodium bicarbonate, other, otherwise known as baking soda, or in Ireland, bread soda, is used as a leavening agent instead of the traditional yeast. The ingredients of traditional soda bread are flour, baking soda, salt, and buttermilk. So, skipping down to the origin, during the early years of European settlement of the Americas, settlers used soda or pearl ash, more commonly known as potash, potash or potassium carbonate, as a leavening agent, the forerunner to baking soda, in quick breads. By 1824, The Virginia Housewife by Mary Randolph was published containing a recipe for soda cake. After baking soda was developed in the U.S. in 1846, breads, griddle cakes, and scones with bicarbonate of soda plus cream of tartar. Tartar? I can never remember whether it's cream of tartar or cream of tartar. I sound like a moron. Anyway, or tartaric acid became popular in European countries. And it goes on to describe the, the history of uh, traditional Irish bread. But the point I want to make here is the Wikipedia article doesn't specifically say anything about the origins of Irish soda bread in the 1830s, as does that previous article. The Wikipedia article does say that by 1824, the Virginia Virginia Housewife by Mary Randolph, was published containing a recipe for soda cake. And this is the first time I've ever caught Wikipedia in a straight-up error. I was pulling my hair out last night trying to find that soda cake recipe in that 1824 edition of the Virginia Housewife, which I downloaded. Finally figured out it's not there. That's an error. The soda bread recipe is in the 1836 and 1838 editions. But, 
that cookbook does not mention anything about Ireland. And again, it's a Virginia housewife cookbook. And this leads me into why this was not just catnip, but catnip that led me down another monster rabbit hole. Uh, because uh, I expected to find just a couple of interesting stories from many once I cracked open my historical databases, something from the antebellum uh, Civil War or Reconstruction era about the origins of Irish soda bread, because I have been following Irish history through the lens of historical newspapers, and newspaper writers loved to write about the Irish. It was such an attractive topic because the Irish voting bloc by the late 1850s and absolutely by the late 1860s was important to say the least. You couldn't possibly escape from the the shadow of that that voting block. Everyone was trying to manipulate them. Everyone was trying to exploit them or court them. And Irish heritage was an important element of many stories at that time. So I fully expected, since Irish soda bread dated back to the 1830s and then millions of Irish came over during and after the potato famine in the late 1840s, I figured that cultural element would have been fresh and just recently cemented, so there would be a lot of stories about that. Turns out I could not have been more wrong. I cracked open uh, Fulton history first, and one of the first things that I found, I have to share this with you, this is from the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, 1885, October 28th. Wanted to do general housework in a family of three. A girl must be a good cook, bread and biscuit maker, washer and ironer, white or colored, no Irish. 486 Lafayette Ave near Bedford. So there is the proverbial no Irish need apply right there. And again, I want to repeat, go to the show notes and follow along because you will have much more of an appreciation for the material if you look at the images. My point here is that I was searching for the word Irish near the words soda bread or Irish near the word soda or Irish near the word bread, whatever, Uh, The point here is that uh, in this case, the word Irish had absolutely nothing to do with the word bread. It was a simple coincidence that I found this. Now, we go on to June 19th, 1936, the Evening Star of Peekskill, New York. This one was important for reasons that will become apparent The name of the column is The Counselor. Irish soda bread. I want to know how to clean metallic cloth, and I want to find a recipe for Irish soda bread. B.L. To clean metallic cloth, send it to a reputable dry cleaner. 
Our homemaking department says that one way to make Irish soda bread, only they call it Irish soda cake, is as follows. Two cups flour, one quarter teaspoon salt, one quarter teaspoon of baking powder. You notice something interesting there? This is from 1936, a recipe for Irish soda bread, and it calls for baking powder. So something's seriously changed in a hundred years. Uh, Three-quarter cup sour milk. Sift the dry ingredients together thoroughly and then moisten with sour milk. Add a spoonful or two of caraway seeds for variety if you like them. Now turn out on a floured board and knead for a few minutes until the mass is solid. Shape into a round loaf and bake on a griddle. When one side looks brown and done, turn it and bake on the other. You can also put the loaf in the oven, and when made in this way, it rises better and is lighter. So you see what I'm getting at here. I couldn't find anything linking the Irish to soda bread, at least not anything from that initial century when I expected to see a lot. So when I ran into this, I thought that was a sort of a Rosetta Stone or at least a missing link. The fact that it said only they call it Irish soda cake led me to think, oh, okay, now if I change my search term, I'm going to find a ton of material back in the Civil War era. Nope. Moving on to 1843, the Ovid B, Seneca County, New York, November 1st. We commend the following to the attention of all good housewives. Those who have tried this soda bread assure us that it is a real improvement on the old process of making this indispensable article of family consumption, dispensing as it does with all necessity of fermentation and producing white, palatable, and nutritious bread when making immediately after mixing. Geneva Courier Soda bread, mix dry and well, rubbed together, two teaspoonfuls of cream of tartar with one quart of flour. Then dissolve three-fourths of a teaspoonful of supercarbonate of soda. Okay, so again, 1843, as one would expect, they're actually using soda in soda bread. Uh, carbonate of soda in a sufficient quantity of unskimmed milk. Mix the whole together and bake immediately. If water is used instead of milk, add a little shortening. If the above directions be strictly followed, bread will be produced of superior lightness and whiteness. So again, all I'm finding is stuff on soda bread, but nothing connecting it to Ireland. Now we're moving on to 1851, May 7th, the New York, New York Semi-Weekly Courier and Inquirer. I found this one interesting because it's a simple statement of exports for the week ending May 2nd, and they have lists of exports for that week to various countries, and in the screenshot in the show notes, you can see I've cropped out only the relevant bit. It's New Granada. And on the bottom left of that list, it says soda bread cakes, 69. And that's the only country on that list that I could find to whom, to, to which we shipped soda bread. No idea why. 
uh, New Granada wanted uh, soda bread. There were various other forms of biscuits and breads going out to, to other countries, but uh, New Granada was the only one that got soda bread. Now we come to a really interesting article from the Jamaica, New York, Long Island Farmer, 1845, August 5th. Virtues of Oatmeal. Blackwood's Magazine, in discussing the comparative virtues of wheaten flour and oatmeal, throws down the gauntlet to England, after having by a few figures proved the superiority to oatmeal. What do you say to these figures, Mr. Cockney? You will not pity us Scotch oatmeal eaters any more, we guess. What makes your race horses the best in the world may be expected to make our peasantry the best, too. We offer you, therefore, a fair bet. You shall take ten English plowmen and feed them upon two pounds and a half of wheaten flour a day, and we shall take as many Scotch plowmen and feed them on the same weight of oatmeal a day, if they can eat so much, for that is doubtful, and we shall back our men against yours for any sum you like. They shall walk, run, work, or fight you if you like, and they shall thrash you to your heart's content. We should convince you that Scotch porridge has some real solid metal in it. We back the oat cake and the porridge against all the wheaten messes in the world. We defy your homemade bread, your baker's bread, your household bread, your leaven bread, and your brown Georgies, your fancy bread and your raisin bread, your baps, rolls, scones, muffins, crumpets, and cookies, your bricks, biscuits, cakes, and rusks, your bath buns, and your sally luns, your tea cakes, and saffron cakes, and slim cakes, and plank cakes, and pancakes, and soda cakes, and seed cakes, and currant cakes, and sponge cakes, and griddle cakes, and singing binnies, your shortbread, and your currant buns, and if there be any other names by which you designate your wheaten abominations, we defy and detest them all. We swear by the oat cake, and the porridge, and substantial bannock, and the prose. Long may Scotland produce them, and Scotchmen live and fight for them. So that's interesting because this person seems to be associating oat-based foods with Scotland and lumping wheat-based foods of every stripe in with the inferior English fare. Nothing about soda, cakes, or breads, or biscuits, or whatever, associating them with Ireland. I found this one in an, a Syracuse paper from 1850. Syracuse Standard, May 10th. Receipts for housewives. By the way, receipt at that time was the equivalent of recipe. Soda cake. One egg and a teacup of white sugar beaten slightly together, two and a half tablespoons melted butter, and one teacup of sweet milk, leaving out enough to dissolve, two teaspoons of cream tartar, and one of soda until the flour, measured before sifting, grated lemon peel. Omit the cream tartar and soda until the flour is well stirred in, and then put in separately and place the cake in the oven quick as possible. Again, no mention of Irish. Now, 
Skipping forward to 1936, I believe this is the point in my search where I had gotten so frustrated at not being able to find what I expected and trying different earlier decades, I finally just broadened my, uh, my, the year range of my search, and I found the following from June 19th, 1936, the Evening Star, again, Peekskill, New York. And this is that same column, The Counselor. Uh, wait a minute, I already read you that one. Sorry, I had that one in the show notes twice. Back to 1831, June 9th, Soda Biscuit. This is from an Albany, New York evening journal. Just received and for sale at 381 North Market Street. Various items including three dozen soda biscuits. And then another ad on the same page. Uh, good teas, sugars, and soda biscuit and sugar crackers. 1831, May 27th, same paper, Albany Evening Journal. Soda biscuit and sugar soda cakes. Sugar soda cakes. So I'm at this point, I'm starting to get the impression that Whatever soda cake was at that time, it was probably something closer to what we consider a biscuit or a cracker now. My next searches involved just searching for soda biscuit or soda biscuits, forgetting about the Irish. And between 1830 and 1839, I got over 1,200 results, way too many to reckon with. Then I tried that same search, but with Irish. The word Irish, within 10 words of that, found nothing. Nothing in the 1830s. So I'm getting more and more baffled at this because it's utterly defying my expectations. I changed that search to search the 1840s. Got a few results, but nothing to do with the Irish. Again, it was just a coincidence that the word Irish happened to be near those other terms. So then, I kept searching. Now, on this one, we've got the Greenfield, Massachusetts Gazette of 1845. Spices of all kinds, ground and unground, starch, raisins, vinegar, soda biscuit, figs, sperm candles, tapioca, Irish moss. There's, there's the word Irish near the words soda biscuit, but again, nothing to do with each other. Grocery list from the Northern Galaxy, 1846, June 30th. This has a list of items including 7.7. Irish and Iceland moss. I don't know what that is, but 7 points. Tapioca, pearl, barley, oatmeal, and soda biscuit. 1846, February 13th, Lowell, Massachusetts, Courier. That This is another dense advertisement for a whole list of groceries. We've got soda biscuit and pilot bread. This is where it started to get interesting. 
to me just from a historical perspective because the fact that it lumped soda biscuit and pilot bread together tells us a little something about the consistency of this food. I looked up pilot bread because I had a suspicion and my search confirmed it. Uh, pilot bread is synonymous with ship's biscuit or hardtack. This is from Wikipedia. Hardtack is a simple type of biscuit or cracker made from flour, water, and sometimes salt. Hardtack is inexpensive and long-lasting. It is used for sustenance in the absence of perishable foods, commonly during long sea voyages, land migrations, and military campaigns. Along with salt pork, hardtack was standard ration for many militaries and navies throughout the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. Now, if you've read the Aubrey Maturin novels by Patrick O'Brien, you've heard many stories of just how nasty hardtack could be. And it was a running joke how inedible and dense this stuff was. So the fact that this advertisement lumps pilot bread in with soda, bris soda biscuit tells us something. Moving on to the Rutland Herald of May 28, 1846. Again, this is a list of fresh groceries. And that one contains soda biscuit. Next, I tried searching for the word Irish within 10 words of the phrases soda biscuit or soda biscuits or soda cake or soda cakes searching from 1850 to 1870. Nothing. So I've built a list of these alternative phrases that I've gotten from my subsequent searches. I know that it could be called biscuit, cake, uh, I think, yeah, biscuit, cake, or, or bread. And I'm coming up with bupkis insofar as you know, I'm looking for stuff that is next to the word Irish. So... 1830 to 1850 yielded zero results for Irish soda cake, zero results for Irish soda bread, seven results containing Irish near the words soda and biscuit, but again, these were just coincidences. Wilmington Journal, October 8, 1847, Groceries and Provisions, we find on that list... Ten boxes of soda biscuit. Just happens to be near the word Irish potatoes. Nothing to do with the Irish. 1847, October 29th. And I'm going to come to a screeching halt here. This is a disturbing example of how emotionally difficult it can be to study old newspapers because your eye invariably falls on something like this advertisement. If you look down the left column under dry goods, the seventh line, bed and negro blankets. Again, that's October 1847. Among this long list of groceries and dry goods, bed and negro blankets. That tells us a lot. Those were mutually exclusive terms. There were bed blankets and there were Negro blankets. I'm, 
I'm assuming that the Negro blankets were something akin to horse blankets. From that same page, fresh supplies. We've got, where is it? Sorry, I'm working to locate, for a better system of locating this, uh, this stuff, but it's still kind of hard going. Ah, that's because I was looking for the wrong thing. This is another example of the <sighs> emotionally difficult stuff. Under miscellaneous, we find Negro clothes, blankets, hats, caps, boots, shoes, heavy coarse socks and stockings for Negroes, seamen's clothing of every variety, etc., etc., etc. Under bread and crackers, we find pilot and navy bread, butter, soda, sugar, lemon, and picnic crackers. So again, that's butter, soda, sugar, lemon, and picnic crackers. So in this case, they're categorized with crackers rather than with the pilot and navy bread. Again, the Northern Galaxy, Middlebury, Vermont, 1846, June 30th. We find rice, arrowroot, sago, tapioca, pearl barley, oatmeal, and soda biscuit. 1850, November 15th. There's a notice in the Wilmington Journal about soda biscuit. Ten boxes of soda biscuit. And again, on that same page, we have another one of those disturbing little lines that crops up. Negro blankets. Same page, November 15th, 1850. We've got soda, wine, milk, and lemon biscuit. And that's under the heading of bread. Now, between 1851 and 1870, I found nothing while searching for the specific phrase Irish soda cake. Four results that had the words Irish soda bread, but again, that was just a coincidence. Daily Dispatch, Richmond, Virginia, 1864. Notice to families, bread, soda, black pepper. That happened to be under Irish potatoes. Nothing to do with each other. But it does tell us that there was a specific type of soda used for bread, which I don't know what that's about. That's the first time I've heard that. I thought all baking soda was the same. And this is another disturbing one. On that same page, my eye fell on this. Runaways. Ran away on Monday the 21st of November from my farm one mile below Bottoms Bridge in Henrico County. My woman, Winnie, 20 years old, 5 feet 6 inches high, very black, 
has very thick lips and a whining voice. I will give a reward of $50 if taken in the county, or $100 if out of it, and placed in Hill and Dixon's jail, where I can get her. James J. Sutherland. 1865, July 18th, in the St. Croix Avis, just received from New York, Soda Biscuit is in that list. November 20th, New Family Grocery. This is from the Edgefield, South Carolina Advertiser. Soda Biscuit. Again, it was near Irish potatoes, but the two items had nothing to do with one another. So I'm finding nothing about Irish soda bread, biscuit, or cake. 1869, September 16th. Biscuit without soda was one of the items that won a prize in the Sumner County Fair. Uh, this was in a Nashville Union and American paper. On to 1853, June 11th, Thibodeau, Louisiana, soda biscuits. And then in the same page, Boston, soda, and butter crackers. Now, I changed tactics, went forward in time again. And I found one of my favorites, simply because of my own uh, nostalgia. This is a Betty Crocker recipe for Irish soda bread from 1943, the Detroit Times. Irish soda bread, loved by wearers of the green and others. A modern, simpler version. Light, fine, its good caraway flavor excellent with many meat courses. One cup of Bisquick. Whoa, Bisquick? Really? Okay, one quarter cup of seeded raisins, one teaspoon caraway seeds, three-eighths cup of milk, quarter cup plus two tablespoons. Mix all ingredients together. Bisquick provides the soda. Pat into well-greased heavy six-inch skillet. Bake about 12 minutes, hot oven, 450 degrees. Cut in wedges. Serve hot immediately with butter. So... In the Library of Congress, Historical Newspaper Archive, Chronicling America, if you're not familiar with it, I ran a search, and I found the results baffling, because in between 1883 and 1904, there's almost nothing that has the term, the, the phrase, Irish soda, except for Savannah, Georgia newspapers. There was apparently this microclimate of a culture that thought Irish soda, the beverage, was a thing between 1883 and 1904, and it existed nowhere else. I find this baffling because, yeah, I've heard of the whole pop versus soda debate, but I know that there are pockets of soda lovers and pop enclaves all over the country. That that meme spread, but this whole Irish soda thing seems to have been confined to Savannah, Georgia, of all places. 
Savannah Morning News, 1883, June 22nd. Fresh Arrival. Now, this is the guy who first had this, and for a while he was the only one. John Lyons. 50 casks Bass Ale, bottled by Eilison Bell. 25 casks of Belfast Ginger Ale. 5 casks of Irish Soda. 1883, July 31st. For sale, Irish Soda Water. I have in store Irish soda water and ginger ale from the celebrated Cromac Fountains, Belfast, Ireland. <laughs> 1884, I'm just moving forward gradually here. Savannah Morning News, groceries, sundries. This one is again from John Lyons and Company, Irish soda and ginger ale. 1884, December, this is under a wine list. Irish soda and ginger ale. Same guy, John Lyons. 1885, May, Savannah Morning News. Again, John Lyons. Fancy and plain biscuits, fresh by every steamer. Also, headquarters for Ross's Irish soda and ginger ale. So now we have a brand name, Ross's Irish soda. Again, nothing to do with soda bread. 1885, May 23rd, Imported Delicacies. Again, John Lyons, Irish Soda is on the list. 1886, same guy, Irish Soda under a wine list. 1887, this is where the advertising is getting a little bit more sophisticated. It's, you can see it getting sort of modular. There's a headline, Drive Away the Blues! Some of the good things that will make the inner man happy. At James McGrath and Company's, their own importation, there is now in bond and in stock 100 cases of brandy, and it goes through all these alcoholic beverages, and in amongst the alcoholic beverages, there is Ross's Irish Soda again. Now, we've got essentially the same advertisement from December 18th, one week later, but then they've swapped out the headline, and this one says, Eat, drink, and be merry. Some of the good things offered for the holiday feasting. So again, that one's Ross's Irish Soda. 1890, Irish Soda Water is for sale uh, at M. Lathan's Estate. So that's a new vendor. Uh, I don't know if it's the same Irish Soda. 1895, May 5th, Special Notices, Summer Drinks. This one is from the Mutual Cooperative Association in Savannah, Georgia, and it lists Irish soda among the summer drinks. 1895, May 19th, Table Tonics. It seems to have been a whole culture of standing at a table and dispensing these uh, soda waters. Royal Irish Soda. This is for sale by uh, James McGrath and Company. So again, we're getting different vendors now that are carrying this... Whatever Irish Soda is, they had it, but only in Savannah, Georgia. 1895, June 9th. 
our place is full of just the eatables and drinkables the hot days set you thinking of, goods we warrant at prices meant to win you. And that one's got Ross's Royal Irish Soda. So, moving on up. 1895, June 30th, at the Mutual Cooperative Association. Savannah, Georgia, Morning News. Full stock of ginger ale, sarsaparilla, Irish soda, and root beer. 1896, May 19th. These are receipts at a custom house, and in amongst them, all this random stuff, tobacco, paintings, decorated earthenware, three cars of bouillon. In amongst all that stuff is Irish soda. 1897, Chatham's Sheriff's Sale. This one is bizarre. This is the only place in all of these sources that I've found where I found Irish soda stands. In an adjacent section, there's an item of Irish soda, but as a separate item, in maybe 20 lines away, there's a bunch of beverage stands, and Irish soda stands are a specific thing. Now, I don't know what the hell differentiates an Irish soda stand from any other kind of beverage stand. I mean, for all I know, there was no functional difference. Maybe it was a brand thing. Maybe it was just embossed in some way with the logo of Ross's Irish soda. I don't know, but I thought that was peculiar. 1898. Le Hardy's advice to raise men. This one is interesting from a historical perspective because it is some sanitary regulations to be followed in Santiago. Now, in the show notes, you can follow the link to the Battle of Santiago de Cuba page on Wikipedia. This was, I believe, a month after that decisive battle in the Spanish-American War. Prompted by a desire to familiarize the boys of the 3rd Georgia and other regiments with the best way to guard against yellow fever at Santiago, Health Officer Libardi yesterday wrote Major T.S. Willie some interesting facts about the disease and the conditions that breed it. The troops about to embark know there is no danger at Santiago from the Spaniards. The danger, if there is any, will be from the fever, and realizing this, Dr. Lahardi's timely information will be of pretty general interest among the soldiers. There are certain precautions which may be adopted against infection, making the camps free from the only danger which now threatens the health and happiness of the men. As the troops are about to depart for a country, Dr. Lahardi says, where yellow fever prevails every year, it may be of service to get some information concerning it. Yellow fever is a disease of locality. It selects its location in low-lying and filthy places, sometimes creeping over the entire surface of a city. It may also extend along the banks of a river for a considerable distance. Persons going into the infected territory are liable to take the disease, especially if they are exposed to the infected air during the night. While the sun is shining, however, 
the poison does not seem to be so active, and persons may go without great risk in an infected territory from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. The fever does not thrive on a high place, and if the camp is located on high, well-drained grounds, well-policed, the danger of infection is not great. Regularity in eating, sleeping, and drinking, the letter continues, keeping the system in proper condition and avoiding alcoholic stimulants will also act as a preservation. Should the fever strike any of the men, it will be known at once by the hot and then chilly sensations, as well as pains through the body. As a remedy for this, take a dose of calomel, say five grains, with one-half teaspoonful of bicarbonate of soda, or two grains of calomel triturate, followed by two hours later by two teaspoons full of castor oil and 15 drops of turpentine to clear the entire digestive tract. As soon as the patient can get into a tub of hot water, he should remain in it at least 10 minutes. He should then get between blankets to sweat out the fever, and if restless, drink hot orange leaf tea. A five-grain dose of Phenacetin should then be taken, repeating it every two hours until the temperature is sufficiently reduced. Take no nourishments whatever except ice pellets, a little seltzer water, or Irish soda water. This should be given in small quantities by the nurses and frequently repeated. Dr. Lehardy wrote in a detailed manner about the proper treatment of patients while the fever prevails, the kind of diet that should be given, and other things it may prove profitable to follow. There is little fear expressed among the men, however, hardly any of them alluding to the fever. They have been advised all along that the best preventative is cleanliness, and they are determined to follow the rules suggested to them as far as possible. It is the intention of the government, however, to bring the men back as soon as possible after they recover from the fever. Dr. W. F. Brunner of the Marine Hospital Service, for some time past stationed at Port Tampa, passed through Savannah last night on his way to Montauk, Rhode Island, where he goes to assist in the isolation of yellow fever cases in Shafter's army, soon to reach there. By using precautionary methods, it is believed there will be no spread of the disease, which previous experiences have shown may be held within bounds where strict regulations are enforced. So again, that's from a doctor talking to the 3rd Georgia and other regiments with the best way to guard against yellow fever at Santiago, and he includes seltzer water or Irish soda water as parts of that regimen. And the way he lists them together makes me think they were, they were similar but distinct. Moving forward to 1899, May 18th. Choicest importations from Europe and Havana. We uh, below the list of alcoholic beverages and cigars and etc. We also carry in stock Irish soda, etc. 1899, June 27th, summer coolers, Ross's Irish soda. Uh, this is at AM and CW Wests. So yet another vendor carrying the same stuff. 1900, Delatour, ginger ale and Irish soda. This is a new brand, uh, superior to imported. So this is something that they're now making 
in the United States, and it's being sold by Henry Solomon and Son. So this is a pretty big deal. It's been going in Savannah, Georgia, and apparently nowhere else, for going on two decades now. 1900, August 2nd. Table waters. Again, Irish soda is one of the items. The S.W. Branch Company is the seller, yet another vendor. 1902, Ross's Irish Soda appears under a list by Henry Solomon and Son. 1903, there's an auction. An auction sale. Uh, Irish Soda, buggies, dolls, all all sorts of furniture. So, random. 1903, for sale, 19 casks of imported Irish soda at auction. 1904, May 15th, imported by ourselves, Irish soda. Now, that one is under cordials, and it's listed along with sparkling waters and ginger ales. 1904, June 19th. This is a fun one because it includes something new and delicious, Jello ice cream powder, all flavors, full directions with each package, an appetizing dessert with little trouble, just the thing for this kind of weather. And then under direct importations, we found Ross's Royal Irish Soda. And that one's through another distributor. 1904, when the appetite lags, ring up the Delmonico and ask for suggestions. These hot days find that the Delmonico has anticipated their coming and have just the things the appetite calls for. And it goes through a lot of sales pitch and Eventually, it gets down to... It always has a large stock of ginger ales, sarsaparilla, Irish soda, and root beer. 1904. Same advertising campaign. No matter where you spend the fourth, this store can help you make it pleasant. Everything good for the inner man. There's that mention of the inner man again. That's a little bit uh, overwrought. And uh, Irish soda is one of the items listed with whiskey, wine, beer, and ginger ale. 1904, July 7th. Say it now. Say it all the time. Rock Royal! The butter. That's butter. None to equal it. Refrigerated creamery to our store four times weekly. Order a block today. Something cooling. Clarets. Ginger ale. Imported. Irish soda, imported. And then it goes on to beer. 1904, July 28th. Why not be sure of what you drink? No doubt as to quality when it comes from here. And that one is another long list of alcoholic beverages, and then it includes Irish soda. September 4th. Again, this is the the same advertising campaign. You can tell just by the design elements. Coming home, and with it, housekeeping responsibilities again. The best way to keep easy, smooth housekeeping is the right store for supplies, and we are so fortunate 
as to be helpful to anyone wanting the necessary assistance. It's not what we have, but what you want that makes this the right store in a business as vast as this. Many tastes have to be considered and many varied wants supplied. That we serve our patrons well is evidenced by the large and ever-growing business. This store carries the stock called for by a discriminating trade, and its freshness, excellence, and reliability can certainly be depended on. Its range, too, covers everything in staple supplies, tinned, glassed, and packaged goods, fine wines, whiskies, brandies, ales, beers, ginger ales, Irish soda, etc. We also invite attention to the McG&R specials, the best that's bought etc., etc., etc. Ah, this is a pre-Labor Day advertisement. Hmm. 1904, November 23rd. Let us have your order today for Thanksgiving. And that one includes Irish soda. And then there's a gap from 1902 to 1943. I can't find a thing in Chronicling America containing the phrase Irish soda, whether it's Irish soda the beverage or Irish soda bread. So I went back to Fulton history and ran some new searches based on my previous findings. And this type of searching is always an organic process. I mean, in, in a search like this, I'll probably try dozens of different searches and each one of which is uh, is a development of what I found in the previous searches. Uh, 1932, Rock- Rockaway Beach, New York, wave of Long Island. There is a restaurant with Irish soda bread. Parker House, bakery and restaurant. Fresh bread, cakes, rolls, buns, baked twice daily, Danish and French pastry. We feature Irish soda bread. So that seems like a pretty big deal. It's not the top billing in that advertisement, but it's it's prominent. So we're working back now from 1940s to 1932. 1930. Now this is where I started finding a lot of real uh, solid Irish cultural stuff, and a lot of it was from the New York, New York Irish-American Advocate. Irish Republican Picnic at Van Cortlandt Park. Under the auspices of the Councils of the Irish Republic of New York, a picnic will be held at Van Cortlandt Park Sunday afternoon, August 3rd. Members and friends will assemble at the subway station at 242nd Street and Broadway at 4 p.m. and proceed to the picnic grounds, about a mile distant. Irish soda cake and tea will be served. Also, cool drinks and a program of dancing, sports, and games is being arranged to suit young and old. For the guidance of those not familiar with the location of the picnic grounds, some of the council's officials will be on hand at the subway station to give information and assistance until 6 p.m. The proceeds will be used in accordance with the adopted policy of the organization to defray operating expenses and enable it to support more effectively the government of the Republic of Ireland. I want you to consider class. In this, think 
of all the travails of the Irish people in the 19th century and how so much of the celebration and the food traditions are associated with those travails and now consider the class of people that is invoking this gastronomic tradition for events. I mean, here we've got an event uh, of clearly middle to upper class people who are donating the proceeds of that event to the Republic of Ireland or to support more effectively the government of the Republic of Ireland. Earlier in 1930, February 1st, this one is stunning. Irish Republican ladies greet De Valera. I didn't know who De Valera was. I'm not up on my Irish history, but I googled him, and uh, this is from Wikipedia. Uh, Elmon De Valera, first registered as George De Valera, changed some time before 1901 to Edward De Valera was a prominent statesman and political leader in 20th century Ireland, serving several terms as head of government and head of state with a prominent role in introducing the Constitution of Ireland. Prior to de Valera's political career, he was a commandant at Boland's Mill during the 1916 Easter Rising. He was arrested, sentenced to death, but released for a variety of reasons including the public response to the British execution of rising leaders. He returned to Ireland after being jailed in England and became one of the leading political figures of the War of Independence. After the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty, de Valera served as the political leader of anti-treaty Sinn Féin until 1926, when he, along with many supporters, left the party to set up Fianna Fáil, a new political party which abandoned the policy of abstentionism from Dáil Éireann. Forgive my pronunciation. From there, de Valera went on to, to be at the forefront of Irish politics until the turn of the 1960s. So this guy, by all accounts, is one of the most prominent Irish politicians and influencers on the planet, and he's in the area of New York, and uh, the Irish Republican ladies greet Mr. De Valera. The members of the Irish Republic Tea Party were honored Monday evening, January 27th, by a visit from Honorable Amon de Valera, accompanied by his secretary, Mr. Sean Moynihan, and P.J. Gillespie, first national vice president of the AARIR. And the AARIR is the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic. Uh, it didn't seem to be very long-lived. I found some references to it in a Washington, D.C. newspaper right around this time. The chief was greeted with great applause by the members and their friends, who, in spite of the bad weather, turned out to pay their respects to the man who has done so much for Ireland. Mr. De Valera explained the purpose of his visit to America and his hopes for the new Irish daily newspaper, which they are to publish. Mrs. Ellen Lynch, who that day celebrated her 70th birthday, recited that lovely old poem, God Save All Here. And not to be outdone, Mrs. Maloney recited The Boys from Clare. P.J. Gillespie sang as none other can, My Dark 
Rosaline. Donations of $472 and pledges of $150 were made by the members. Tea and Irish soda bread were served by the ladies. An invitation was extended to the chief to honor them with another visit before he returns to Ireland. The tea party is open every afternoon and evening. Friends who wish to make a donation to the paper through them may do so by visiting or writing to the Irish Republic Tea Party, 153 Lexington Avenue, New York City. So just take a step back and consider that. This is in 1930. The Irish Republican ladies are serving Irish soda bread to one of the most important figures in Irish nationalism on the planet. So you better bloody well believe that by that point, Irish soda bread was associated with the Irish. So that's sort of a, a that's a waypoint. Now, moving on to 1927, I should say back to 1927, February 5th, Masquerade Dance with Irish Soda, Cake, and Tea. Masquerade Dance at Irish Hall this Saturday night. A masquerade dance will be held at the Irish Hall, 498 3rd Avenue at 34th Street this Saturday night, commencing at 8 o'clock. The old-fashioned barn dance held there two weeks ago was so successful that it has been decided to put on another dance of the same kind, but this time it will be a masquerade. Refreshments, Irish soda, cake, and tea are served free by the ladies' committee. London Brothers Orchestra will play for the Irish and American dances. So in this case, it says Irish soda, comma, cake, and tea. I'm not sure whether the syntax there is uh, ambiguous or not. It seems ambiguous to me. I'm not sure if they're referring to Irish soda, comma, cake, and tea, or Irish soda, Irish soda cake, and tea, or if that comma was misplaced, but I, I, I'm not even sure if that refers to Irish soda cake, or just cake. Uh, 1920 now, moving way back, February 28th, girls, don't forget the Irish soda cake. The Jolly Ten at Gannon's. This Saturday night is going to be a big time at Gannon's Hall, 65th Street and 3rd Avenue. The Jolly Ten are having an entertainment and dance with refreshments. There will be particular attention paid to the refreshment end of the affair. You can rest assured of a good evening's fun. And girls, don't forget the Irish soda cake and the allspices. I really don't get that. The allspices. I mean, I have used allspice plenty in cooking, but I don't know what it means in the context. Don't forget the Irish soda cake and the allspices. I think allspice must have meant something different in 1920 than what it means now. Here's another reference from 1918 to Irish soda, comma, cake, and salon tea in the Greenpoint notes. Then, again in 1920, we have... An Irish soda bread 
recipe from the Brooklyn, New York Greenpoint Daily Star. Irish soda bread, mixed dough as for plain biscuit, two tablespoons full of baking powder to a tablespoonful of shortening, a quart of flour, and a little salt. Add half a teaspoonful each of caraway seeds and sugar, one-third of a cupful of raisins, and sufficient milk to make a velvety dough. Mix and bake in a greased iron pan. 1926, April 3rd, we have an advertisement from Cron Brothers Bakery. And among other things, we find whole wheat bread, rolls, muffins, Irish soda bread. 1923, the Summit Herald, Summit, New Jersey. Announcement, the Summit Bake Shop is under new management. Fresh rolls and buns twice a day. We sell homemade Irish soda bread. Now, we come to the big one. 1914, July 18th. Page 8 of the Rockaway Beach, New York Wave of Long Island. It's continued from an article starting on page 1. Now again, go to the show notes to read the entire thing. This is a long article about thousands crowding a sanitarium fair. City officials help fate. With zealous work, villas of many nations, a brilliant feature, gala wind-up tonight. Encircled by beautiful latticed arches and emblazoned by myriads of electric lights, the Edgemere Carnival and Circus, in age of the sanitarium for Hebrew children, opened officially last Saturday night. So, skipping to the relevant section on page 8, Inascara, Chaucer Olcott's cottage in Saratoga, has been chosen for the Irish villa and shows an effective combination of the shamrock and the Irish... Uh, This is a bad scan. I can't read it that well. Uh, Shamrock and the Irish something. Irish linens, such as table and bed linens, towels, handkerchiefs, and dresses, small pots of growing shamrocks and Irish moss, Colleen Calendera, Avoca hats, big oak ornaments, Dudines, Kilkenny hats, Irish terriers, Irish embroidery in brilliant colors are among the attractive articles for sale. Irish soda bread, gooseberry pie, and poteen to drink will also be for sale etc., etc., etc. So my point here is that this is a very posh-sounding event to raise funds for a Hebrew sanitarium. And among the villas that they're setting up to, uh, shall we say, ape different cultures of the world, they have an Irish villa and Amongst all of the iconic fare, they have Irish soda bread. So clearly, by 1914, this has become, this has percolated into our culture deeply enough for not just Irish people, but for everyone to associate Irish soda bread with the Irish. 
And that, dear listeners, is the earliest reference I can find to Irish soda anything. Irish soda bread, Irish soda cake, Irish soda biscuit. 1914 is the earliest instance of Irish soda bread. (sighs) Moving forward again, I'll give you a few more here. 1915, there's an ad in the Daily Argus of Mount Vernon, New York. Do you know where to get Irish soda bread with sun-made raisins? Certainly, at BB American Bakery. 1924. This one, you're going to want to pay attention to because this one gives us some interesting clues. On March 12th, in the column, Lucy Lincoln Talks. Lucy Lincoln cordially invites newsreaders to write her for help in solving problems and for health and beauty hints. Use one side of the paper only. Please don't forget return postage and name and address if the reply is to be made by mail. Soda Bread. Dear Mrs. Lincoln, will you please print in your column a recipe for Irish soda bread? I have tried unsuccessfully to get this recipe. Thanking you kindly, Mrs. K. McL. Buffalo. We have no recipe called Irish soda bread. Here is the recipe for buttermilk bread, which is made with soda and may answer your purpose. And it goes on to give the recipe. Now, a few days later, same newspaper, March 18, 1924, same column, Lucy Lincoln Talks. Irish soda bread. Dear Mrs. Lincoln, Seeing Mr. Mrs. K. McKell's request for soda bread, I send recipe. In my childhood days in the north of Ireland, this bread was made daily in all homes, yeast risen, or what is called loaf bread, being an occasional treat purchased at the bakery. It was always eaten hot at the four o'clock tea, but used cold at other meals. Here it is. Two quarts flour, Dessert spoon baking soda, teaspoon salt, put through sifter, add sufficient buttermilk to make a dough that can be rolled out one inch thick. Cut across twice, making four parts, and bake on a griddle. This is the genuine soda bread, but the addition of a small quantity of shortening and a tablespoon of sugar improves it for some tastes. Sour milk can be used. Irish woman, buffalo. In 1917, we see two instances of a pictorial advertisement for three loaves for ten cents Irish soda bread by Jeanette Hardman. This is printed in the Albany, New York Journal and in the Patterson Evening News of Patterson, New Jersey. Irish soda bread by Jeanette Hardman. Uh... Sieve four cups of flour with one-half teaspoonful of salt and one-half teaspoonful of cream of tartar. Dissolve one teaspoonful of baking soda in one and one-half cups of milk and pour into the flour. Mix together into a dough with one-half cup of seeded raisins. Turn out onto a floured board, knead smooth, then make quickly into one or more loaves and bake for about an hour in a moderate 
oven. This will make one large loaf or three smaller loaves of bread for 10 cents. So in 1917, they were still using soda. 1924, Irish soda bread appears under today's prize recipes in the Standard Union in Brooklyn. Six cups of flour, six teaspoons of baking powder, six tablespoons of sugar, one teaspoon of salt, half package of raisins, half package of currants, a little caraway seeds, two eggs, two cups of milk. Notice there that they're using baking powder instead of baking soda for their Irish soda bread. I find that weird. 1915. Now, here's where we get to some conflicting information that, that gives us a little bit more cultural context that I think is key. The Philadelphia Inquirer, Friday morning, January 20th, 1915. A richer scone for a richer variety rubbed together one pound of flour, two ounces of salt butter, and a half ounce of baking powder. Pour into the center half a pint of thick sour cream and mix lightly and quickly into a soft dough. Divide into, into four, mold each piece round and smooth and flatten slightly with the rolling pin to the size of a small plate. Brush both sides with beaten yolk of egg. Place on a buttered tin and bake in a very quick oven. When just beginning to brown, turn them quickly with a broad-bladed knife and finish baking. Be sure you turn them before they are more than half-baked or they will not be so nice. The real Irish soda cakes, familiar to those who have been in the southwest of the, quote, distressful country, unquote, are slightly different. As they require thick milk, that is, very sour milk, it is best to set aside a jug of skim milk for a couple of days when it will be found sour and thickened. Have your griddle, or if you do not possess one, a large iron frying pan will do for these. Really hot, though. Future Hugh here, cutting in, kinda sorta but not really breaking my no editing rule. I have to add this because I forgot to say it last night. The author of that last article about the scones says... The real Irish soda cakes, familiar to those who have been in the southwest of the, quote, distressful country, unquote, are slightly different. That spelling of country, C-O-U-N-T-H-R-Y, got me curious, of course. So I did a little research, and I got this. This is from The Will of the Wisp, Volume 4, July 3rd, 1870. An Irish Melody. Air. Oh, Patty dear, and did ye hear the news that's going round? Oh, Patty dear, and did ye hear how things is coming round? The landlord is by law forbid to show on Irish ground. Then if your cabin you should cape, the agent can't get in, for there's a pleasant law against the paying of the tin. I met with Bright at Gladstone. I met with Bright and Gladstone, and they made me understand how poor old Ireland's peasants now would soon get all the land. She's the most contented country, 
that ever yet was seen, for the Irish Parliament will soon be sitting on the green. Since laws have made the blades of grass to grow for them that sow, and since the Saxons' armed line their colors dare not show, then I will change the tactics too I wear when all's serene, and now's the time be sure I'll stick to wearin' o' the green. The original is as follows. Oh, Patty dear, and did ye hear the news that's going round? The shamrock is by law forbid to grow on Irish ground. No more St. Patrick's Day will cape, his color can't be seen, for there's a cruel law against the wearin' of the green. I met with Napper Tandy, and he took me by the hand, and he said, How's poor old Ireland, and how does she stand? She's the most distressful country that ever yet was seen, for they're hanging men and women there for wearin' of the green. When laws can stop the blades of grass from growing as they grow, when the leaves in summertime their color dare not show, then I will change the color too I wear in my canteen, but till that day be sure I'll stick to wearing of the green. So consider that. We have an article from 1915 making a reference to an Irish melody from 1870. So again, this woman thinks that the only authentic Irish soda cakes are from the southwest of Ireland. I get the sense that each person who hearkened back to their childhood of eating uh, soda bread in Ireland was thinking of a different variant on this common thing, and they thought of their own version as the only quintessentially Irish version. Furthermore, remember, all of those different searches I did, all of the different ways I cross-referenced different terms, how exhaustively I, I leapfrogged from one search term to the next to the next, I tried all these different combinations. I couldn't find anything on Irish soda bread before 1914. And again, remember, I found thousands of hits for, for instance, soda biscuits dating back to the 1830s. Clearly, soda biscuits, soda bread, soda cake, those were things. And clearly, the database searches that I was running and the optical character recognition underlying it was working. I found that whole 20-year string of Irish soda articles and advertisements that had absolutely nothing to do with bread, crackers, or biscuits. I found, what, uh, 1831 all the way through to 1914, a huge selection of material that proves that the word Irish, the word soda, the word bread, cracker, biscuit, all that stuff, was being found. But the fact that there were no results associating Ireland with those other words says something. Now, I, I get it. I realize the absence of proof is not proof of absence. And 
All other things being equal, I would say, well, no, this doesn't prove anything. But this isn't just absence of proof. This is absence of a specific subset. Again, I found all those terms next to one another, but I found absolutely nothing linking Irish soda bread, what we think of as Irish soda bread, to Ireland. So I believe that Irish soda bread, strange as this sounds, was not culturally tethered to Ireland in any distinct way until the early 20th century. Now, I welcome data to the contrary. It's just that I'm pretty good at these searches, and I'll be damned if I can find anything. And maybe I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. I think my wife thought I was, I was making a big deal out of something that didn't particularly surprise her. But think back to those stories that I read at the beginning of the episode. Those stories, especially the one from the, from the food article saying that this tradition developed in Ireland in the 1830s, if that's true, where are all of the articles one would expect to find associating this dish with Ireland from between 1831 and 1914? They don't seem to exist. So... I think we're looking at a fascinating example of history as stories. What we usually think of as history, time and time and time again, we see proven that it is in fact just lore. It's just stories that we made up in the intervening years so that our what we think of as history is really just a city floating in the air. It's, there's nothing underneath it. Our stories that we think imply a direct lived continuity dating all the way back to Ireland in the 1830s. Actually, there seems to have been a discontinuity. Uh the strong cultural association between Ireland and Irish soda bread seems not to have existed in all of those decades. Uh, I hope I'm being clear on this, and I hope I don't sound too foolish thinking that uh, this is a big deal, and I hope you're not there shaking your heads uh, mad at me for having drug you through all this for nothing. I just think it's remarkable that we have all these stories and we assume that, again, we assume a continuity that I simply can't find. And again, I think it has a lot to do with class. I, from what I've been able to find, it seems like relatively well-to-do people concocted this specific cultural association that speaks to the privations of the Irish experience both before the Irish diaspora and the Irish experience in America. And from what I can tell, that's a story that was made up in the beginning of the 20th century 
don't get me wrong, I'm sure that people in Ireland did, in fact, make soda bread. My point is there doesn't seem to have been anything distinctly Irish about it until people started telling stories about that in the early 20th century. And again, prove me wrong. I welcome it. I'll be the first one to admit, hey, I was wrong and I was looking at absence of proof and calling it proof of absence. Uh, leave a comment. <sighs> Thanks for listening and until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love, he stole them away.